0: For this morning, people of God, let us now open our Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2, and our text will be verses 11 through 14. And as always, you'll need to keep your Bibles open as we work our way through this marvelous text. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we reverence thy name, and it is good for us to remember as we come to the Word of God that this Word remains when we do not. That is to say, in this world, but as we who have imbibed the Word, who have eaten of the Word, who have who have longed to fellowship with the Lord Jesus by the effectual work of the Spirit of God within our lives, we know that this Word will bear eternal fruit in us. We are weak and Thou art strong. We are the creatures and Thou art the Creator. We are the lost in and of ourselves and Thou art the Redeemer And so we come asking that the Holy Spirit will, in that wonderful sense, recreate the sermon that has been worked on over these weeks, and that the Spirit of God will blow upon it and open our hearts to receive it, that we may give all glory to Thy name, that we may learn how to bow within our hearts before Thy sacred presence and acknowledge that Thou art God and that our lives would be genuinely changed as we gather week after week under the hearing of the Word of God. And receive our thanksgiving, Lord, that we have not been left to our own devices, but that we have the perfect Word of God to guide and direct and to show us the paths that we are to follow and those that we are to avoid as believers in Jesus. And as always, as the Word is open this morning, For those who do not yet have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we would ask that this might be the morning in which those hearts are opened and that they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, just as so many of us here have been so pleased and thankful to have done. All by the grace of God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. This is the Word of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, as we come to this wonderful passage this morning, I think that it will be a help if we simply remember that the Apostle Paul, by divine inspiration, is writing to a preacher He's writing to this pastor on the Isle of Crete who is ministering to a very hard-hearted people by nature who have been saved, but are in need of great instruction about the Christian life. And he's ministering to them in that time in the Roman Empire in which things were unspeakably evil. Now, as we come to this text this morning, Our culture also has refused to retain the knowledge of God and has abandoned the natural created order of things and is hell-bent, literally, on self-destruction. But it is into such a world that our Savior came. It is in such a world that we Christians are called to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, And it is in such a world that ministers of God's Word have a very, very special calling and task of which we read in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now, in the very first verse of chapter 2, he speaks of sound doctrine. When we come to the text that we have read this morning, he gives a summary of that sound doctrine. And he tells us that this sound doctrine, when imbibed, when loved, when believed, when leaned upon and trusted, that this sound teaching of the faith and all that that it brings with it makes us to be godly people. And so the concern that I have this morning is that we take this text and understand how to live godly lives in Christ Jesus on the basis of the doctrine that is found here. And so, the Apostle Paul gives a summary of sound doctrine, and the first thing we see is the grace of the Incarnation, the grace of the Incarnation, and we see it in verses 11 and 12. Let's read those verses again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says in verse 11 that the grace of God has appeared. Of course, he means grace personified. The Lord Jesus Christ has appeared. Christ's appearance in history, in time, in space. He has come to light in his coming into this world. For the word that he uses here is the word from which we derive our English word, epiphany. It was an epiphany. His coming was light and life for his people. And even though in this past month of December we have dwelt upon the incarnation of our Lord, what the Apostle Paul undoubtedly has in mind here when he speaks of his coming into this world as light, the epiphany of his coming, is not only his birth, but also his completely holy life that led to the cross, his suffering and bleeding there, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension into heaven. All of that is included. And the Apostle Paul says, this is the grace of God that instructs us or teaches us. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training or teaching or instructing us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And the word that he uses for teaching is a comprehensive word. Don't simply think of a classroom, though that certainly could be included. It includes imparting data, but it also includes exhortation. It includes correction. It includes discipline. The term that he uses is the word that is ordinarily used for child training. So God is saying that through the truths that he is now giving to us in this passage... He is training you, forming you as one of his children. And he's forming you to do what? Well, verse 12 tells us to renounce ungodliness or impiety, to deny worldly lusts, that is to deny what belongs to the realm of evil as having any part to play in our lives, to live soberly, and this is maybe one of the few times I'll use the actual Greek word, it's sophranos. And I'll mention that because we're going to return to it later, it's used several times in this chapter, which means to live a self-controlled life, or to live in a thoughtful manner, the Christian life, in light of the truths that are revealed. And to live righteously and godly in this present world. To live uprightly means to live by God's standard, not our own. Not to be laws unto ourselves, but to follow the word of the Lord. To live according to His standard and to do so with a heart, with genuine piety. And he says this is to be done in this present age. This age between the ascension of Christ and the return of Jesus Christ. Which in Galatians 1.4 the Apostle Paul calls this present evil age. And so the purpose of grace according to verse 12 is to instruct us in all of these things. The purpose of grace is to instruct us in godly living. Now this implies some things, doesn't it? If we can be instructed to live according to what these doctrines teach us, this sound doctrine, then it implies that we have been regenerated, that we have the new birth, that our hearts actually can receive instruction. That we can really be changed. That we can genuinely be transformed. That godliness is now possible in our lives. It was not before we came to know the Lord. Before the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts. But now it is possible to set our affections polar opposite that of the culture and to set our affections on those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And in verse 15 plain preaching about godliness is the pastor's calling on the basis of these wonderful truths that are revealed. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so you and I are called to learn the grace of God from the appearance of Christ in this world. That is to say that our minds and hearts are so set upon the truths and realities of what the coming of Jesus Christ meant, the lights that He brought into the world, what His birth and death and resurrection actually mean, that we are to learn the grace of God from the appearance of Christ in this world for us. Yes, the, the grace of God has opened our hearts. But we continue to learn as children what that grace is all about and what that grace means. Now, here's the question that I want to ask. I think that all of you will see that indeed this is true. This is exactly what Paul the Apostle is saying needs to be done. This is the wonderful and glorious result of focusing upon these truths. It really does transform us when we learn how to meditate upon these things And to arise and through the day and go to bed at night thinking upon these wonderful realities. Why then are we putting obstacles in the way? That's my question. Why, believer, is it so true of us that we are allowing things into our lives that produce the opposite of what this should produce? Why is it that we find ourselves meditating, sometimes upon good things, but overly so, without reference to the gospel, upon things of this life that are passing away? Why is it, even more importantly, that we are allowing into our lives meditation and thought upon those things that tear down the faith in our lives rather than build up godliness within us? R. L. Dabney in his book, The Practical Philosophy, made the point that there is the important law of habit, the important law of habit, and he says, a soul is polluted by every unnecessary inspection or contemplation of polluting action. Now, that's very important. You may, for example, have a civil magistrate, and it may be very necessary for him to delve very deeply into a very sordid matter but what guards his mind and his heart through it all is the recognition that there is a just cause for his doing so. Justice must be done. He must understand the details. But for us to dwell upon sordid matters when there is no reason for it, no call upon our lives to do so, is to do what Dabney says here, a soul is polluted by every unnecessary inspection or contemplation of polluting action. And something is desperately wrong in my heart or yours, or in the church of Jesus Christ in our country. There's something desperately wrong when things that are morally beautiful and good are not loved, but things that are morally sordid can become, can become those things to which we are attracted. You may know these lines. They're from Alexander Pope. He said, Vice is a monster of so hideous mien, as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen oft, familiar with its face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Let us not fall into the ungodly trap, the trap of the evil one, To think that we can expose ourselves to anything that we so please, and those things can be hideous things, awful monsters. And to think that we can expose ourselves to those things over and over and over again, reading things that are sordid, listening to things that tear down and do not build up and, and are cacophonous, watching things that the Christian eye should not see, the Christian heart should not embrace. For first we endure, and then we pity, and then we embrace. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, let's do the opposite. The grace of God is so wonderful. It is so magnificent. What Christ did when he came as light into this world is so marvelous. Why not, believer, because you are regenerated by the Spirit of God, and you now have capacities that once you did not have, why not focus upon those things that are good and right and true, those things that are beautiful, those things that are noble? Why not put your focus there? Because the grace of God changes us. Grace produces holiness wherever it is truly present. So he looks back to the incarnation of our Lord. But then also, as the grace of God teaches us, he looks forward to the grace of the return of Jesus Christ. You find that in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he gives a powerful motive for Christian living, that you find all through the New Testament. You couldn't have missed it if you were listening carefully to the Scripture reading that Pastor McNeil led us in from 1 Peter 3 this morning. The promise of the revelation of Jesus Christ and His coming at the last day is all through the New Testament and especially in the epistles given as a powerful motive for living by the grace of God and for the Lord Jesus Christ. The appearing... uses here is the same word that he used in verse 11 of the first appearing of Christ. It is epiphany that is combined here with the word glory. Epiphany and glory taken together. And every time I read this, I think, how can I describe this? I can't describe it to myself. How can I even begin to describe this to the people that to whom I minister. And you might think of the aurora borealis. Maybe you've seen the northern lights and you've seen the shimmer and the shine and the brilliance of it all. Or perhaps you might think of, uh, of the, the, the breaking of the dawn uh, over a cypress swamp. Or perhaps some of us would prefer to think of the breaking of a dawn over a Carolina mountain. But all of those things fall by the way, when he speaks of the, the epiphany, which is the idea of light, the appearance, and glory, which always has the idea of light, and we are awaiting that in the coming of Jesus Christ when he returns, then he, he is telling us to look for something that we have never yet seen, To long for something that we have never, never been exposed to in our lives. We have never seen anything like what it will be when Jesus Christ comes again. But we know it will be powerful. We know that it will be ultimately transforming. We know that it will be the resurrection of the dead. We know that it will be glorious. And notice the one who is revealed here. He says that the one who is revealed in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the one we long to see when he returns at the end of the age. And Paul's point here is the deity of Christ. Just let me say that the Greek construction that is here really nails it. That when he speaks of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he is not speaking of different members of the Trinity. He is speaking of Christ, who is our great God and Savior. The one definite article is distributed between the two. He's speaking of Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, without which we have no gospel to preach. People of God, we await the coming of the God-man. The one who in his first coming became man, and who now in his glorified body continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And this is our blessed hope, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. It is not this world that is our hope. It is not not what what, what can happen through governments that is our hope? I, I don 't demean the, the, the christian 's responsibility there, not whatsoever, but our hope our hope is on the coming of Jesus Christ. Christ himself will come. Christ himself will come as our hope personified, so that the subjective hope that I have in Christ will be objectively seen when he comes again and he receives us unto himself. And the reason for our subjective hope is the fulfillment of our future longing in Christ. So how does this point to holiness? How does this teach us to live godly and sober lives in this present age? Well, 1 Peter 4.7 says, the end of all things is near. That is to say, on God's timetable, the next important event that is on his eschatological timetable is the return of Jesus Christ. And thoughts of Christ's coming serve as alarm clocks every time we are tempted to sin, and it makes us to be watchful. Turn your Bibles, keep your finger here, return to Romans chapter 13 for a moment. Let's read these familiar words, words by the way that were used to convert Augustine one of our great church fathers. But in Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 11, notice how he mentions this very truth and impresses this very approach upon the believers in Rome. He says in Romans 13:11, "'Besides this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed.'" He is saying to us in that passage. Know that Christ is coming. That the light already is breaking. Jesus Christ will return. And therefore, he says, the nightlife in Rome should have no attraction for you, believer. When you're living in view of the return of Jesus Christ, then you see the world to be vanity fair that is passing away. And that this world is tawdry when we are looking for the epiphany of His glory, the greatness of the light that is to come. And so we live in the epilogue of God's masterpiece. The last page will turn, and the book will be closed. And then we will cast our crowns before Jesus, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Should not this, the Apostle is saying to us, should not this inform our Christian living Oh well, yes it should. Let's look at another passage. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2nd Peter chapter 3. 2nd Peter chapter 3. The apostle Peter is making this very point when we begin reading at verse 8 of 2nd Peter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that you should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, the day of the Lord is the return of Christ. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away like a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemished and at peace. Powerful, powerful motive. The word then that comes to us from this text is wake up if you are Asleep. Wake up if the reality of the return of Christ has not invaded your heart as it should, controlled your thinking as it should. Let us help one another to be reminded of the coming of Christ frequently, often. Let us think upon the resurrection of the dead in the last day. Let us think upon the glory that awaits the people of God. Let us dwell upon the hope that is promised us in the Bible. And then it will help to put all of the things we face in life into a proper perspective, and we will begin to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, looking back to the incarnation, looking ahead to the resurrection of Christ. Now, as he summarizes sound doctrine, remember chapter 2, verse 1, he now turns to what the God-man came to do, and he wants us to focus as well upon, upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And so the third thing that he points out in verse 14 is the grace of atonement. The grace of atonement. Let's read it. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now, the relative pronoun who, there in verse 14, points you back to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he is speaking of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he speaks of his atoning death on the cross. Paul is stressing the inestimable worth of what Jesus did when he shed his blood on the cross to save us from our sins. Why is he looking back to our great God and Savior? Because our great God and Savior is the one who shed his precious blood, and that blood is infinitely valuable so that if you today are in your sins and you have not trusted in Christ, come to him because his blood is infinitely valuable to pardon you of all your sins. And he speaks of that vicarious sacrifice in this verse who gave Himself for us. Now we find often in the Bible, the Father giving the Son. But here's a stress upon the Son giving Himself because He loved you. Because you, you were in His heart to save and to redeem. So to the glory of God His Father and for the good of all who would believe in Him. He sacrificed himself, gave himself for us. Well, for what purpose? Well, verse 14, again, speaking to Christians, tells us there are two purposes. Now, there are other purposes too, but in this verse, there are two purposes for which he gave himself. You see it here in verse 14. One was to redeem us from all lawlessness. And the word redeem that is used here, there are several different words for redeem in the New Testament. The word redeem that is used here is the word that means to ransom or to buy back from captivity by the payment of a price. You read it uh, just this morning in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 in verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. That's what he did for us, people of God. He redeemed us, but he redeemed us, it says, from all lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of the law or any want of conformity thereunto. And the time was in which The law, representing to us as it does the character of God, was against us in our sin. And the law condemned us. But now that we have renewed hearts, now that the blood of Christ has cleansed our souls, now we cry, "Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. As Paul the Apostle put it when speaking of sanctification in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. And that's the Paul, Paul's point here, that this truth leads you to sanctification because you have been redeemed from all lawlessness. Now there was some discussion mentioned in one of our classes this morning about Phariseeism and that we all are Pharisees in our hearts. I think that's certainly true. and I've said it many times from this pulpit. I think, however, there is a pendulum swing from time to time. It goes from from legalism to antinomianism. That is anti-law legalism to antinomianism. And I think the pendulum in conservative churches today is more in the direction of antinomianism than of legalism. I will tell you fundamentally, though, it doesn't matter because whether it is antinomianism or whether it is legalism, it is the same heart in either case. Both, as one old Scottish theologian put it, both are quarrels with the law of God not wanting the law of God to have its rightful place in our lives. And so I ask myself the question sometimes, from where does this antinomian spirit come that we meet in churches, and even, even in our Presbyterian churches, this claim that one can be a Christian and casually dismiss the law of God? And I can give you some answers to that question. But the important thing is to note that it's there. My brethren, this this should not be. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, then of course we love God's law, not because it saves us, it once condemned us. We are redeemed from all lawlessness. And now, because we are redeemed, the law of God representing to us the character of God, we begin to love, we begin to desire we begin to walk in. As Carnock put it, he is no atoner if he is not a refiner. And so if we have the thought, he can atone for my sins, but he'll not work in me to change me so that I begin to love the things that once I hated and love the law of God and love the Bible and love the truth. No, he is no atoner for you if he is not a refiner for you. But also, There's another purpose for which he gave himself. Look at it here in verse 14. To purify a people for his own possession. We are his by purchase. And undoubtedly, he has Deuteronomy 7.6 in mind. In which he said to ancient Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." And so, what he said to ancient Israel of old, you are my treasured possession, and I have redeemed you from Egyptian bondage. He now says to the church of Jesus Christ, you are my treasured possession. I have died for you, shed my blood for you, and I have done this to purify a people that are peculiarly my own, that are my own possession, who are zealous for good works, he says not doing good works in order to be saved. You will never be saved by any work that you do. But because you know Christ and have been redeemed, you are now zealous for good works. You now have a new life. You have new thoughts. You have new longings. You have new desires. You have new purpose. You have new plans because there has been imparted life to the soul in the new birth. What makes a good work good? If I have my unbelieving friend that gives $10,000 to a charity, and I give out of a heart that loves the Lord and wants to, wants to help people because of Him, I give $10,000 to the charity, which is good. Is my giving perfect? Oh no, it's still mingled with all sorts of motives undoubtedly that aren't right. Nonetheless, that right motive of glorifying God is there. For my unbelieving friend, there is no such motive. An unbeliever, biblically speaking, can do no good work. We're speaking vertically here in the sight of God. You see, works in the believer's life are fruits, not roots. It can only be done by those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. They can only be done by faith in Christ alone. They can only be offered in union with Christ and His merit. They can only be done to the glory of God, which no unbeliever can do. Good works are done to glorify God. And so seek to conform our works to God's standard, only the believer can do. Being zealous, red hot for good works is the result of the Spirit of God's work within our lives. So unbelieving friend this morning, if you were here... You need a new heart. You need a new heart. Christ is almighty to save a sinner dead in trespasses and sins. You are completely helpless and hopeless. And as Thomas Watson the Puritan said so well, until sin is bitter, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Now, I told you, but I wanted to return to this word sober-minded that we find in this text. This word sophronos, it is a favorite word in Titus. In chapter 2, it is used in verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 12. In verse 4 in your ESV, it is translated train, train the younger women in how they are to love their husbands but it's the same word, lives sober-mindedly. This word is used just to give us an illustration of the power of it. It is used in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus heals the demoniac and casts out the one in whom there had been legions. And the text says that then afterward, after Jesus healed him, removed the demon, he was clothed and in his right mind That's the word here. Being in your right mind. Now in Titus there are many teaching words. And Paul is saying to the pastor, here's your calling. Teach my word. So that your people become sober-minded people. So that your people become self-controlled people. So that they're in their right mind. Not going after the mindlessness and moral chaos of the world, but in their right mind by the truth that you teach. Teach your flock so that they become self-controlled learners. And I especially want to encourage the young men here, the young men here, to develop sanctified, thoroughgoing, noble Christian character in all areas of life to have your right mind because the church of Christ needs you because eventually your families will need you to be sober right minded men so have done with lesser things and be a Christian man and learn how to do it now only the grace of God can do that And let the truth teach you, inform you into self-control godly Christians and let nothing get in the way. Now the Apostle Paul has given to us in this passage powerful motives for godly living. That if we but dwell upon the truth and reality of what, what the coming of Christ meant, if we dwell upon the power and reality of what the coming of Christ in the future will mean, that glorious blessed hope, And if we focus our attention in large measure upon the cross that pours contempt on all our pride, then we will learn how to be self-controlled, godly people in this present evil age. Now, I read an article recently about a lawyer, and this lawyer, probably early 1800s, was a typically well-educated individual who was well-read in English law and well-read in all of the English classics, but he was a deist. He was a pure Sicinian and he went to Paris, and he lived an ungodly life, and he used all of his, his great gifts for himself and for self-aggrandizement. And, but eventually, as he go, grew old, he came and he lived with an, a niece, Um, and that niece had a brother who was a pastor, and there were books there that he had never been exposed to before, and he began to to read them. And they began to sense a change in this man. And obviously, this old, crusty, deist, cold-hearted, Sassanian lawyer had been converted. So the young pastor sat down with him, he said, what, what brought about the change? Was it these books of mine that you've been reading from my shelves? Yeah, no, it wasn't that. What was it then? He said, it was Katie. It my niece. I've watched her closely now, ever since I've been home. I've seen her respond to things in ways that are above nature. It just doesn't fit nature. Something's going on here. And I began to contemplate it, and God converted me. People of God, that's what Paul wants the unbelievers at Crete to see from Titus and his congregation and from this pastor and this congregation. The world will never see it in perfection, but that they will see That There's been a spiritual resurrection in this person's life. And for me, that has become a powerful motive to believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the tomb. Because it is the logic It is the logic of a holy life that God will use to bring unbelievers to Jesus. And as one of our old divines says, the light of a holy example is the gospel's main argument. Amen. Amen.